toward the end of last period, um, I handed out a sheet, and uh, I've got it up here on the uh, monitor, from uh, Colossians 3. Now, that was the text for the sermon today in chapel. And I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but as my wife always says, you can't turn it off, can you? I'm doing hermeneutics in the sermon. And uh, uh, remember how we were discussing this last clause here. When Christ appears, your life, then you also with him will appear in glory. And remember I said, he contends that this gives the result. And so he's got this little diagram over here. You have the reason and result. So in other words, he's reading it as you, d- <clears throat> you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, and the result is that when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. Well, I don't know whether you guys were paying attention or not to what uh, Tom Egger did in the sermon, but he didn't take that at all. I wrote this down. This is what he, he said. He quoted the first part of that uh, final verse there. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he said, but when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So in other words, it's not the result of what's going to happen. It's a- actually the adversative of it. It's a contrast to it. So... Um, You'll notice now in, remember a colon is like a clause, a complete clause. So in colon 4 and 4 and 5 are both part of uh, the uh, verse 4. The gar lets you know that this is going to be related to what comes prior as a reason for it. All right, so that's fair enough. The problem occurs when you get to 5, colon 5. There is no hoste as a result, or Allah, but, or gar, for, or tote, then. See? And when you don't have that word, i.e., semantic indicator, then what it's related to, and how it's related to is not all that obvious. That's one of the big points I'm making in chapter 5. So it's a lot more obvious with the gar, for it's going to be reason, and it'll generally relate to what happens immediately before and so forth. Uh, But when you don't have those indicators, then you're going to have to try to figure from the context what it goes with, how does the argument flow, and so on and so forth. And so what you're going to have to do is just you have things standing next to each other, two semantic units. You've got to figure how they go together. And generally, like with Gar, there will be semantic indicators. So hence my contention here that there really is no such thing as syntax as a separate category. It's all about meaning. Semantics is all about meaning. And it's all about, this time, the relationship between meanings. That's what it's about, relationship between meanings. That's still meaning. And if, it's, if relationship is informative, then 
you are still dealing with semantics in the end. We'll talk about that further, but I thought it was very interesting today now that um, uh, with the, the next class succeeding, the one we just had, that the sermon happened to be preaching on precisely this point. Now, that actually makes a good introduction, and what we're going to do today is uh, I'm going to finish my review of a few things, and then we're going to take your papers kind of topically this time. But this makes a good introduction to the whole business of Hebrew poetry. Now, we started that last time with that Bartelt analysis of the seminary's mission statement, where he was talking about how things are chiastic and so on. Well, take your books, and let's take a look at Addendum 5A. Now, just so you know, if you'll take a look at the important resources on page 139, what essentially has been the landmark work over the last, uh, well, really century and a half, is that Robert Loth book, Lectures on the Sacred Poetry of the Hebrews. And he's the guy who sort of set a lot of categories in place about various kinds of parallelism and so forth. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that's being done lately, and Adela Berlin is a very important point on this as well, a very important name. Now, you'll notice at the bottom of page 139, I talk about patterns of signifiers, and we get some of those like an acrostic on the top of the next page, where the first letter of each one of the verses starts with a different Hebrew letter. What is very interesting is this one about a little over halfway down on that page, which I call change conclusion. And this is something I found in the Old Testament, and I found it tremendously commonly in the New Testament as well, where you give uh, three, four, five, uh, sometimes two, but usually three or four uh, units that are pretty much identical, and then all of a sudden, the last thing in a unit will switch. And generally... That's a good semantic indicator to tell you, number one, this is a unit. Number two, the unit is coming to an end right here. And, uh, you know, number three, that final thing will generally be kind of the highlight or something like that. Now, everybody knows about chiasm on the next page. Um, uh, This point B, chiasm, very, very common. Um, uh, So that you have... um, Uh, A, B, B, A as your structure. Now, what this this chapter is basically asking is, on pages 142 and 143, all right, you got these interesting patterns. Now what? There's no place in the Bible where it says, hey, you know what? If you've got three units that are the same and the fourth one that concludes it is different, Treat that as a semantic unit and try to interpret them all in the light of one another. There's nothing that says that. So, essentially, we're trying to figure what you do semantically with these patterns. And, um, uh, you know, the parallelism, I mean, everybody knows about this in the Psalms. So, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, 
bless his holy name. All right, hey, well, parallelism. It's kind of saying the same thing and it repeats it. Well, now, you, what you've got to do is at some point, you've got to ask your, yourself the question, are those actually completely parallel? Or is his holy name different than the Lord? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Or this question, O my soul in the first part, but all that is within me, is that more than my soul? See? So, uh, or do you just say, ah, close enough for government work? You know, the things are, are, um, uh, are, are ba- you know, they're looking for synonyms. Now, there's, there's nothing that answers this in the Bible. I hope you all realize this, that when we're doing the hermeneutics mumbo-jumbo that we're doing in this class, none of this is answered in Scripture itself. It doesn't tell you how to do poetry. It doesn't say, hey, you know what? When you have a matrix, you've got to find the key, and the key is going to help you to unlock the rest of the... There's nothing like that. We are trying to come to an understanding of how systems of signifiers work with each other. And every once in a while, I'll get on some of your papers, uh, comments about, uh, uh, you know, you're making this more confusing and so on, or where are you going with all this? Well, one of the real chief points of what I'm doing with the class being conducted like this, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. You must be rigorously self-aware of every single move you make when you interpret a text. I quoted the great Martin Franzman saying before, the exegete must never say, of course. But of course these are parallel. Well, of course this concludes. There is no of course. Look at Ephesians 4. Remember the thing I put up on the board? where you have he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers for the outfitting of the saints, comma or no comma, for the work of ministry. Now, there's no punctuation in in the manuscripts, so somehow you are making moves. I just read an article by a very prominent guy on theory of seminary education and so on, who was quoting this Ephesians 4 passage and was saying, well, of course, this shows that it's all about equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Yeah, if you do one reading, it is. But not if you're doing something else. And every time you're making a move, you'd better be making it for a specific reason that is going to give you, I mean, you know, where do you kind of aim with all this? Eventually, you're aiming for totality of explanation. What you want to do is explain as much stuff as satisfactorily as you can. Not as simply as you can or as complexly as you can, but as satisfactorily. Now, that's all kind of subjective. I mean, there are some people who are numerologists who say what you do is you count up the number of letters and words and so on like that. Nothing in the Bible that says you can't do that. I just don't know that's a real satisfactory way to take normal human documents. Uh, so this chapter is attempting to, um, uh, 
just introduce all that and uh, this thing on Hebrew poetry and look at this general theory on page 145. The simple fact that two lines are paired seems to suggest that there is a connection between meanings that is important in total understanding. Yeah, but what is that? And that's what you argue about, and that's why commentary writers are still in business. Now, there are large-scale structures, such as this great giant chiasm that's done by Ken Bailey, in the story of the men in the fiery furnace. And that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so that's taking the story and structuring it. Now look what it says there. Wider application. Interpreters have found poetic structuring in large portions of OT narrative, especially the use of chiasm. Not only in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. You can structure the center of Luke's gospel, the so-called travel narrative, chiastically. There's a very, very important commentary on the book of Hebrews that does the entire book of Hebrews chiastically. Well, is that right? If it is right, what does it mean? You know, can you say A always corresponds to A prime, or is it just a memory device or something like that? So I'm trying to make you aware of these... um, Uh, of these features and of the fact that what you're getting out of them is interpreting. Nothing is obvious. Then finally, addendum 5b on canon. Now, I want to say something. The canon in hermeneutical perspective is addendum 5b beginning on page 150. I want to say something overall here. One of the things that this book does, for better or worse, and I will put it that way, for better or worse, is that it drives a hermeneutical system according to semiotic theory. So the theory of signs and what they mean. That is to say... Everything that I consider in this book, like the canon, prophecy and fulfillment, interpreting parables, making application, it's all going to basically build off of the communicative model and the basic structure of signifiers, conceptual signifieds, and reference as we laid it out initially in chapter 4. That's what I'm doing with canon. In other words, this course is in quite marked contrast to the hermeneutics course I had, which was quite wonderful, and by my sainted teacher, Martin Charlemagne, who is mentioned at the beginning of the book. But Martin Charlemagne dealt with stuff topically, and I would have to say sort of uh, like they were hermetically sealed or something like that. So, like, today we're doing canon. Tomorrow, we're doing interpreting the parables. The next day, we're doing historical, you know, stuff like that. What I try to do in this book, and it's always worth talking about when we get to Addendum 5b. This was the hardest part about writing this book, is getting the flow of the topics. 
And I'll tell you what, if you write something on hermeneutics, which is about the theory of interpretation, it better be a fairly comprehensive theory that can handle all these various things so you're not just picking stuff out here and there and saying, oh, and by the way, we got this topic, and, you know, throw it in. So the section on canon is placed where it is because issues of canon are essentially semantic, semiotic issues. That is to say, which sign set, which signifier set are you going to read authoritatively? I just spoke Velp's mumbo-jumbo there. Let me put that more traditionally. What books are going to be your authority? But what books are your authority is not asking anything other than what signifier sets <clears throat> are going to be the ones you are going to interpret <clears throat> and you will use those signifier sets and their meanings authoritatively, which means any matrix of understanding you're doing, those signifier sets and their meanings are going to be the key to the matrix. That's, to speak more traditionally, that's what we would mean by saying they're authoritative. Okay? So what I've tried to do here is to say, when the question of canon comes up, it's actually a question of signifiers and conceptual signifiers. And one of the big questions that always comes up in the canon is, is there a canon within a canon? Are there parts of the canon that are actually more important than other parts? What's that but a question of what's the key to the matrix? See, all of these kinds of questions are actually at their base the fundamental hermeneutical questions that are raised in chapters 4 and then 5. You've got a system of signifiers, signing meaning. Where's your linchpin? That's the non-negotiable. You go there and you say, yeah, but what about that? See, that's the linchpin. And when you, that, when you have that, then the rest of the stuff spreads out from there. Now, what I'm contending here is that there is a canon within a canon, and there always has to be. In no case can you have 66 books, and they're all equally important. At some point, just like in a novel, let's say a mystery novel, all the events in the mystery novel are not equally important. There are some that are going to kind of give away the clues or something like that. So I'm asking the question, you got a canon, that's good. So we've got the books, let's say, of the New Testament. Do you just kind of rummage around and get passages from every place? No, you don't. Essentially, the things that head up the canon are the most important, which are the Gospels. In the Old Testament, the books of Moses are your foundation for interpreting the rest of the Old Testament. Now, to a certain extent, I'm sort of making this up. I'm making lots of stuff up in this course. By, by that I mean, this isn't, nothing fell out of the sky 
that tells you that this is the divine you know, way that God would say it, what I am doing in this course and in this analysis of the, of the canon, and this is actually going to be a very important point for me to make to you guys. I should have probably made it earlier, but somebody's paper in Chapter 6 actually kicked my thinking off this way. In this course, believe it or not, this may not be obvious to you in reading the book, but it, it really is the way I'm thinking. I am not prescribing one thing to you. All I am doing is describing what actually goes on when interpretation of the scriptures takes place. That is to say, we select a signifier set, we all have our favorite passages, which are the touchstone passages. What does that mean, speaking vels? We have keys to the matrix. See? I'm not saying it should be this way. I'm saying it is this way. This sometimes has been an aspersion cast at me that I am uh, you know, kind of laying down laws as to how it is to be done. I'm actually not doing that at all. This is really a descriptive enterprise, not a prescriptive enterprise. So when we interpret, we in fact do look at signifiers. In our minds, conceptual signifieds come up. We relate them to other things in a matrix. You know, see, all that stuff I'm telling you is just a description of what actually happens. So one of the big things for me in this course is to bring that to your awareness so you know what you're doing and you know what other people are doing. And you know why when you have an argument with somebody you can't seem to come to an agreement. Well, lots of times that's because you both have different keys to the matrix. I mean, here, here's the easiest illustration, trying to deal with a dispensational millennialist. <clears throat> you both believe the Bible is the Word of God. You both believe that it's inspired, inerrant, reliable. You won't agree about anything else that you interpret practically. Why? Because you are Christocentric. You believe that Christ is the key in the center of the Scriptures, and they're not. They are logocentric. They believe that, abstractly speaking, the promises of God are unchangeable and irrevocable, so that when God says something in the Old Testament, it can never be in some way fulfilled and brought to a fullness in Christ. It's got to stay just the way it was. All right? So therefore, and they say this openly, you interpret, you don't interpret as we would. We would say you interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. And they say you interpret the New Testament in the light of the Old Testament when God first gave the promises. Now, folks, that's a huge difference. It is a big semiotic difference of how your signifiers are relating to one another. The keys to the matrix have changed completely. 
And when the keys to the matrix change, all of a sudden the whole meaning gets different. So what I want is for you to be aware of how complex and web-like all of interpretation is with people making these interpretive moves at every step of the way. You know how it is when you're arguing or talking with somebody and somebody will use the phrase, yeah, but. Yeah, but this. Well, that yeah, but is generally, I see your point, but what you think is important is not really important because the matrix actually sets up differently with different keys. Yeah, but what about that passage? So, um, as far as this part of Addendum 5B is concerned, one of the chief things that I would very much like you to be aware of is on page 152. By the way, before I get to that, I just noticed footnote number four. If you page back here to bottom of 151, uh, I'm making the point, those heading divisions or subdivisions of the canonical matrix are the touchstones or anchors for interpretation. There is a natural semantic importance of the Pentateuch and especially of Genesis in the Old Testament. And uh, but look at footnote 4. It's really interesting. However, according to Childs, Deuteronomy placed in the final position in the Pentateuch became interpreter of the law. So Genesis isn't the key, it's Deuteronomy. Who's right about that? Now, I'll tell you how it sort of works in the scholarly world. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's who's ever more famous. So if Brevard Childs says this and Jim Veltz says that, then generally people will believe him because he's more famous. But in actual fact, there's not really a better argument for it. I mean, he's just making an observation that sometimes the concluding element is more important than the beginning element. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. How do you make a decision on that? you're going to simply have to read and see which one is right. This is what I mean about making total sense of the total evidence that you have. Now, what I want to take a look at here is this sentence about homologumina and antilegomena. Traditionally in the New Testament, there is a distinction made in the books of the New Testament between homologumina and antilegomena. And that is to say, now there's some historical dispute about this, but I'm going to give you the quick, cheap, dirty, and nuclear version of this. So essentially, the four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, 1 Peter, 1 John. These are homologumina.
and these are the ones that were always and everywhere confessed to be the New Testament scriptures. Now, the anti-legomena, and Ozzy, not to get uh, um, uh, etymological on you here, but you can see anti there, so people have spoken against them, would be the other books. So you have Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. These are books that were not universally accepted as New Testament scriptures. Now, again, the kind of cheap, quick, dirty, and nuclear version would say something like this. That this, especially the four Gospels and the Paulines are unquestioned by the early to the mid-2nd century. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of evidence, you know, that much before that. But especially by about 180, that would be true. But the two I've circled, which were called in the manuscripts, Megalion, the big book, and the Apostolicon, which is the apostolic writings. That's the Paulines here. These are even the canon within a canon for the homologumina. Now, buzz. If you get nothing else out of this course, you'll fail. But... <clears throat> This is absolutely key. Folks, you can't use antilegomena to trump homologumina. Why? It's not the key to the matrix. Key to the matrix is on the left side of the board, not the right side. Those are the books that are the center the focus and the locus of defining authority. It doesn't mean the other things aren't authoritative. It means as you're doing the interpreting, whatever they say has got to be congruent with what's said with the homologumina. When they say something, it is authoritative, but to understand what it's actually saying, you've got to see it in the whole matrix. Now, this is huge, and it doesn't make any difference if you want to say they're all inspired or whatever. Historically, this is a matrix layout right here, and cannot, in, in my opinion, cannot be simply uh, ridden roughshod over and, um, what do you want to say, smoothed out. This tended to happen in the area, in the age of Lutheran orthodoxy in the 17th and 18th century, where there was a much greater emphasis on inspiration by the Spirit and so on like that. Uh, but at Luther's um, uh, time and the time of Chemnitz, this would have simply been, um, as you would say, de rigueur. This would be the way that it was necessary to look at it. And thus, by the way, this will explain something. 
This is exactly why. Now look at the look at the board. This is exactly why Luther actually felt he could be in a position to say that Hebrews was probably not canonical. He had question marks about James, the book of Revelation. See? He never did believe the book of Hebrews was canonical. And he's got every right to that, let's say as historic Christian, because those are anti-legumina books which had been spoken against and not, not supported universally throughout time and place um, by the church. So there, these, you might say, have a kind of a question mark to them. And if you're going to include them, the understanding has got to be congruent with the understanding this way. Now, this has an incredibly important impact rhetorically and in terms of apologetics. For example, when the early reformers were arguing with the Roman Catholics over good works, they were insisting that you're going to have to understand the book of James over against Paul, where James says a man is saved by faith and works. You're going to have to say, well, by faith he means something a little bit different or something like that. The Roman Catholic Church did not do that. They thought that James was the touchstone, and therefore the arrow kind of had to go the other way. Now, their, their argument, I think, is fundamentally flawed hermeneutically. You cannot make a homologumina book subject to an anti-legumina book or make the anti-legumina book your touchstone. Now, by the way, this will give you a very, very practical thing when you go out on your vicarage or at your first call in two respects. Number one, your first Bible class, Ozzy, is not on the book of Revelation. One of the reasons for it's anti-legumina. Secondly, the book of Revelation cannot, cannot be your touchstone for eschatological deliberations in such a way that it's trumping what goes on in the Synoptic Gospels or what Paul says in the Thessalonian epistles. So you want to find out about that aspect of eschatology that deals with the second coming. We'll see that eschatology deals with a lot more than that. But you want to deal with that aspect that deals with the second coming, you start with what Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, particularly. You'll look at what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Then you might look over there, but you don't use Revelation as your touchstone. Now, um, and by the way, by the way, this is why, in, in my opinion, it is so deadly to question the authenticity and the authoritative stature of any of the Pauline epistles. Like to say, for example, Paul did not write Ephesians, or Paul did not write Colossians, 
And that's a secondary of secondary authority. Those books are homologumina. They are the foundation. They're the foundational sign set for Christianity. You can't fool with those. Well, I mean, you can, but then you're not a historic Christian. You know, that's kind of what the Gnostics did. They had extra books and extra touchstones. Yeah. Would you say that the anti-legomena books, it's not that we like, don't trust those books, it's just that they don't have the keys? Is that kind of what um, you're saying? I would say you could say both of those things. It's certainly true that they don't have the keys. Okay? Now, you may choose to distrust some of them because of their overt statements. Like, for example, Luther was always bothered that in the book of Hebrews, it seemed to say that if you had sinned after your baptism, you couldn't be restored to repentance. And he did not feel that that was, that was correct. A lot of people, <clears throat> um, uh, particularly in the West, <clears throat> like the book of Revelation, but the East did not. And so, um, um, as a matter of fact, um, there are 27 books in the New Testament the Syriac church's canon is only 22. See, so there, it, you know, as, as a matter of fact, it just kind of isn't in play in certain areas of the church. Right, right, us. What about for the people <clears throat> that feel like Hebrews is written by Paul? Well, see, that's, that is a strangely insightful question there, Gonzalez. Uh, <clears throat> no, as, as a matter of fact, that's the best way to try to save it. And there was a guy who taught on our seminary when the Fort Wayne Seminary was in Springfield before 1976. There's a guy who taught on that faculty um, who argued that position strongly, namely that the book of Hebrews, if you were going to accept it, that the only reason it sort of came into the canon was people saw it as Pauline, and you had to accept it on that basis. I don't think it can be seen as Pauline. The, uh, one of the other teachers of mine, the third one in the beginning of the book that I mentioned, Walter Jenrick, wrote his doctoral dissertation at Washington University in 1948, and he published a series of three articles in the Concordia Theological Monthly in the late 40s, his, his dissertation was on the book of Hebrews, and did Paul write it? And he compared the content and especially the style and the rhetoric of Hebrews to the book of Romans and concluded no. So, um, you know, I, I'm thinking you kind of can't go there, but that's a very, very good way to try to proceed, if you want to put it that way. Right, and, and people have, uh, have basically seen that. Now, you know, there have been a lot of questions raised about 2 Peter. It's got, got a different style and so forth. Believe it or not, C.F.W. Walther, first president of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, actually, I think this was in about the 1860s, actually went to a congregation here in Missouri to settle an argument between them and their pastor. And their pastor was contending that the book of Revelation was not canonical. And he defended the pastor's right to take that position. By the way, this is one of the reasons why when you become pastors, and 
give your oath that you accept the canonical books of the Old and the New Testament as the Word of God, the wording for evangelical Lutherans such as ourselves is the canonical books of the Old and the New Testament, not the 66 books, or not a listing of books. Why? Because the edges can be cloudy. Now, there... There is no exact um, parallel exactly to this for the Old Testament, but there is in a way. There is in a way. You know, kind of like I said, these, the Megalion, the four Gospels, and the Pauline Epistles, Apostolicon, sort of the primus inter pares, the first among equals. Well, for the Old Testament, that's the... uh, Uh, that's the five books of Moses, really. And then when you have the prophetic books and the other historical books, they they would be in this category of of homologumina, but kind of more of the stature like this. But there are anti-legumina books. Now, the Old Testament people never talk like this, but there are anti-legumina books like um, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, uh, Song of Songs, uh, Esther, Lamentations. So these kind of floated sort of at the periphery of the canon along with competitors like the Wisdom of Solomon or Ben Sirach, Ecclesiasticus, that's sometimes called. And other books like the Judith is another one. The books that you would know maybe as the Apocrypha, which the Roman Catholic Church has. But some of those would be like, say, Wisdom of Solomon and uh, Ecclesiastes. You know, these are kind of in that, that mushy sort of area. One's not included. Ecclesiastes is included. Uh, so... Percentage-wise, I would say for the Old Testament, the books that are more on the periphery is a lot smaller. And it'd be like Ecclesiastes. I mean, that'd be, that'd be a classic one with its kind of dark view of everything. Um, uh, Esther, <clears throat> the book which doesn't mention the name of God, you know, stuff like that. Um, But what I'm trying to do in this chapter, and that's why this occurs here, because people sometimes ask, what the heck are you having this discussion of canon for in chapter 5? This is a signifier set problem. Which signifiers are you going to use, and what's the key to your matrix? That's all this is. Yeah. You know, now that's a very, very interesting point, Eric. Do you know that as far as we know, the book of Acts never circulated with Luke? Ever. And the four Gospels, in the the Synoptic Gospel course we talk more about this, the four Gospels always circulated in units. As far as we know, sometimes John circulated separately, but it was either the three Gospels or the four. And this is, let me just say right now, this is a huge point 
because the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, Mary Magdalene, and so on, Gospel of Truth, those always circulated independently. They never circulated it. I mean, you, you don't get this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Thomas. Or Matthew, Mark, the Gospel of Truth, and Luke. You never have that. The, the, um, the Gnostic Gospels always circulate independently, and the Synoptics always circulate together. Hence, strangely, Luke and Acts, which, you know, are clearly, because he says in the start of Acts, the first, you know, log on I wrote to you and so on. Um, it, it's just, it's kind of not like that. And, I, you know, I'm not sure historically why that is, but it's actually of tremendous theological significance that those circulate the way they do, and it's like you can't break into this, uh, this gospel unit. And, by the way, let me just say, this is off topic, as if I ever get off topic, uh, but uh, this is why these portrayals that you see of the selection of the canons came out in this National Geographic thing a few years ago. Well, there are all these gospels around, and then Irenaeus just picked out four. No, there weren't. There weren't all kinds of gospels around. By the middle of the second century, there are four gospels around. By the end of the second century, there are 30. Okay? But it's not like you have 30 marbles in a box, and then suddenly a guy chooses four. No, it's kind of like, you know, how batteries come in packs together like that? It's like that, and then you have the batteries in a plastic pack like that in a thing, and then later on somebody throws in free batteries, individual batteries, unattached. Well, you can see that early on at the bottom, first in, were those ones in that battery pack, and there's no sense saying it's, I mean, it's not, it's not literally untrue, but it is rhetorically deceptive to say, oh, there are 30 ones to choose from, see, or 30, 30 batteries in the box. No, it's not, because when you look at the actual historical configuration, it's not like that. Why did we abandon the Apocrypha if that was simply the antilegomena of the Old Testament? When we well, no, it's not the antilegomena of the Old Testament. The Apocrypha would <clears throat> contain the losers in the antilegomena fight. See, so in other words, you would say that there, there were books that were argued about, okay, on the margins. Let's take, like, two of the prominent ones. Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. One kind of makes it, one doesn't. They're both spoken against. We would have this in the New Testament because if you look in the New Testament, there were some books such as the Didache. A lot of you have heard about that, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Let me get a better pen here. Um, Epistle of Barnabas, of Barnabas. Shepherd of Hermas, and so forth. Now, these would be ones that floated on the edge, like the Didache, and, um, um, you know, these, this would be sort of your equivalent to the Apocrypha. And then, 
something like Jude or Hebrews gets in. Yeah, yeah, that, that's more the analogy. Right. So, uh, you know, as I say with this, that essentially with the canonical question, what I'm trying to do for you is to put this into a semiotic system. This is essentially a problem that concerns what signifier sets you're privileging within those, which ones are the key to the matrix. That's what this question's really all about. And when you interpret, the keys have got to actually be the keys. So, so in other words, let, let's just go um, <clears throat> trans-biblical. Now, I mean, uh, New Testament, Old Testament. Let's take them both. <clears throat> Given what I'm talking about, you cannot trump a passage from the Gospel of Mark with one from Ecclesiastes. It just it it kind of doesn't work like that. You have to go the other way. Okay. Oh, by the way, folks, <clears throat> I should not have to uh, say this to you, but I and I won't name names, but. Canon does not have two ends. That in the middle. That's the kind of canon, you know. This is canon, which means the rule. Yes. Justin. If you think they're in, they're inspired. Okay? I mean, essentially, this is very important. Essentially, the church did not argue on the basis of inspiration of the Spirit. They argued what was apostolic. This is why, Oz, your question about who wrote that and if it's Pauline, see, that's why that's so important. That's why it was very important for the church to say Mark was the interpreter of Peter. That's the connection. Luke, he was with Paul. Matthew and John, they were apostles. Uh, it's got to be apostolic teaching. And um, uh, the apostolic foundation is just so critical in all this. 1 John 1, 1 to 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare also to you in order that your fellowship may be with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's what's apostolic that's critical. Good question. All right, now let's uh, got one minute. Let's look at some of these questions. By the way, I've been battling through your papers on um, <clears throat> on chapter six. There is let us use the phrase lack of clarity on the part of some people on the three levels of interpreting signifiers. The three levels of signifiers. So tomorrow, we're going to talk specifically about that, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll take your papers. Um, you, some people have handed in papers for Chapter 7. We will not get to those tomorrow, so you can wait till uh, Monday with those. Uh, but Chapter 6 is an exceedingly important chapter with the levels of signifiers concept. It's one of the foundational concepts in the book. Now, uh, Ficken, <clears throat> uh, couldn't have said it better at the beginning here. 
Chapter 5 seems to build on the previous. If we did not understand the concept of signifiers and conceptual signifies, it will only complicate things in this chapter. That's exactly right. This builds upon the basic building blocks of the other one. That is exactly correct. Um, I, I wanted to take a few of your papers on taxonomic hierarchy. I'll just take one here because then we'll be over time. Um, uh, Josh, it's a very interesting. Uh, he actually handed this in for Chapter 4, but it turned out that it was more relevant for Chapter 5. <clears throat> and this was the uh, business of animals. Now, I want you to listen to this as to how he went through this and started to go from a wide, generalized concept to more specific. <clears throat> if a person were to tell me that they saw an animal the other day, the first image I get in my head is that of a cow, specifically a black and white Holstein heifer that's being raised on my father's farm. As he continues his story, however, he may mention he saw it on the street. <clears throat> with his information, I visualize a brown squirrel that is playing with the oncoming traffic. Next, he comments that it was a nice dog that he was able to pet. Now I see a yellow and white-bearded collie, similar to the one I had as a child. Finally, he describes the dog as a brown dachshund. So he's gone from animal, to an animal on the street, to a dog, to a brown dachshund. Because of the words that he used when telling his story, my mind brought up the mental images I created to define these words. So, and as he added more the taxonomic hierarchy got more and more specific. So as you add things in and narrow it down, there are less and less possibilities. The more general it is, the more possibilities that it is. And I think this was an excellent illustration. Okay, guys, see you tomorrow.